0: Welcome to America, Can We Talk? I'm Debbie George-Addis. Love these Thursday shows, so very grateful. I have the opportunity every week to have a longer, more detailed conversation with one or two guests on a topic that matters to all of us, and today we're very blessed to have in our studio two guests. We have Texas State Senator Bob Hall, whom I'll introduce in more detail in just a moment, and Mr. Jeffrey Younger, whom I'll also uh, introduce in more detail in just a moment. I want to take a moment to thank Real News PR for developing these beautiful new studios, so grateful to be up here and having them. Also, want to thank the uh, people who come and show up at the studio audience. They make it fun to be here every week. Uh, if you're a member of America Can We Talk, you're welcome to join us in studio. You can email me at AmericaCanWeTalk@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Love to have you. And let's kick off today's Thursday show on America Can We Talk. So, I'm going to turn do a little more introduction. I'll tell you, by the way, I also want to thank Bridie and Radio for carrying this show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening on radio, please know that at 30 minutes past the hour and at three minutes before the next hour, you will go off to a commercial break. At the bottom of the hour, at 30 minutes after, don't go away. Listen to three minutes of commercials and come back because we'll still be talking. And you don't want to miss a thing. Also, if you're listening on radio, go to our website. If you ever miss anything or want to follow up with something, our website is americacanwetalk.org everything you see on this show, every story I talk about is recounted on that website. You can see past interviews, past shows, and everything we talk about because I love to have you feeling informed and inspired to share the things you learn on this show. So, first of all, welcome to the studio both of you. Thanks you. so glad you're here.
1: Thanks for having us. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, there are a bunch of news stories that were in the news today, and honestly, I, I thought I might start running through these amazing things that happened just today, but I'm not going to do that. I'll save them for next week's show, uh, because what we have what I want to talk about today, uh, really, these are issues that happen to be in Texas, and this is a nationwide show, and I know you're listening actually all over the world. But what we're experiencing in Texas, the kinds of issues we're facing, these are faced in every state in our country and really around the world. So I going to start first as Senator Bob Paul. Introduce him. Um, he is a a retired captain from the U.S. Air Force, retired business owner, and you know he is so he's someone that the uh, really the conservatives, Republicans, count on so often quickly want to just tell you a little bit more about him before he uh, joins us. Um, he actually attended the Citadel. He graduated from the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, with a degree in electrical engineering, and he got a regular commission as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, I actually wanted, I didn't even know this until reading about him today, uh, but he was the only Air Force cadet selected to be a battalion commander, and he was awarded the coveted Wade Hampton Sabre as the graduating cadet who contributed the most to the Citadel during his four years as a cadet. I mean these are it's a school full of extraordinary people and he was the extraordinary of the extraordinary and I think it's important to remember those things. But now he serves in the Texas State Senate uh, and as he's a leader on many of the issues that a lot of other people don't want to talk about, don't want to be the leader, don't really want to be the one putting themselves out in the media. So people are very grateful uh, for Senator Bob Hall and I will turn to him in just a moment. But first, our other guest in studio is Mr. Jeffrey Younger. And many of you may recognize his name. He ran for Texas State House. Um, and he uh, was district sixty three sixty um, three. And in a primary, and um, I don't know what the real outcome was because I don't trust elections anymore, but he does not, he's not going to be the GOP candidate. Um, but he is a small business owner and also former military. Um, he's a veteran of the U.S. Army Infantry. Uh, he served as an infantry uh, assaultman in the United States Marine Corps, uh, last duty station at the U- United States Air- Army Airborne School, um, and he left the military in 1984. But the reason we're here talking today that is that his family became involved in an issue which really became and is a uh, a, a big issue in this year, 2022, and over the last several years. Uh, and it involves what is the right role of the state in legislating and, and what society should be doing about what seems to be, in my terms, like a pandemic of transgenderism, a uh, a spreading of thought about that supports the uh, belief in transgenderism, and even involves the question of whether or not uh, young children should have access to transgender uh, treatment, care, therapies, drugs, and eventual surgery. Uh, and this became a very personal issue in his life, um, as he uh, is divorced and the dad of twin sons. And the mom of these twin sons uh, decided, I believe, when this one of the two of the twins was about two years old that even though he's a boy, clearly anatomically a boy, he was really a girl. And she's been advocating transitioning a very precious young child, uh, trying to ch- work toward changing this child's gender. And Mr. Jeffrey Younger uh, did about everything a dad can think of doing, trying to stand up and expose that issue to the public. So. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks. Thanks for
0: having me. So, Mr. Younger, I just want to have you, I mean, this story, I know is, is I mean, I get teary thinking about it. So I'll um, say before I even ask you, I'd love to have you just give a little more background about what occurred in your family until you got to the point where you're in a very public battle over the question of who gets to decide whether your very young son should be
2: transitioned to a girl. So it started when my son was two years old and uh, my ex-wife, who's a pediatrician in Capel, Uh, she's a doctor, began putting my son into timeouts and saying, you know, don't be a boy, the monsters only eat boys. And I was like, this is very strange. And, and, you know, whipped out the, you know, the Christian obedience card and said, you cannot do this anymore. Very quickly, uh, within about six months, she filed for divorce, forced me out of the house. And uh, if you go onto YouTube, um, you can uh, Google mommy says I'm a girl. The video went viral. And it's my son just past his third birthday telling me that his mother is teaching him that he's a girl. It's the first iPhone video I ever took. She was cross-dressing him, uh, presenting him in public as a girl and telling him that he was actually a girl. That he had a girl's brain and a boy's body. And had already exposed him to the I Am Jazz uh, book and other transgender things. And this led to a a long battle, even in the schools. Uh, My son goes to Capel Public Schools. And, uh, I would take my son to school, uh, in boys' clothes and the teacher would give him a dress and they would change him into a dress without telling me they did this for a year. And, um, he was using the girl's bathroom. They were teaching him that he was actually a girl. And at one point I was the only one in his life telling him that he was a boy. Um, this culminated as she began to push this more and more, uh, her and the pediatrician discussed chemically castrating my son at the age of eight. And it's in the medical records. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, subjective. Um, at eight or nine, they wanted to consider chemically castrate in my son. So that precipitated a court case which happened in 2019. And uh, the, the top transgender experts in the world showed up to this little district court in Texas, uh, 255th district court. Um, I brought in the, the, the men who had actually founded the transgender science from John Hopkins, and they shut down their clinic after four and a half years because they could prove they were actually harming people with their treatments. And she brought in uh, experts like Johanna Olson-Kennedy, some of the top experts from California, and we had a battle royale right in front of a jury. Um, I won that trial. I got 50-50 custody and no child support. In order to get that, I had to go through some counseling on things like recognizing the signs of bullying, unconditionally loving your child, the typical things that a court will order. The psychology establishment here in Texas, the Texas psychology establishment, in reaction to that ruling, sent out a memorandum to all of their practitioners. Uh, that said that they must affirm children in their chosen gender identities. And that effectively meant that if a child shows up with a gender identity different than their biological sex, the psychologists were not allowed to help children identify with their biological sex. They could only help them into a trans identity. So every psychologist that has seen my son, of which I've never been able to select one, the court has always picked one, um, every single psychologist has recommended that my son be transitioned to a girl. And to tell you how biased some of these systems can be in family court, the original custody evaluator in my divorce case uh, is, is um, a man named Blake Mitchell. He's used by courts in Collin County, Denton County, Douse County, and Tarrant County. Uh, I showed him that video. Mommy says I'm a girl. And I told him, my number one issue in this whole divorce case is that she's tampering with my son's gender identity. He said, not only was it not true that she was not tampering with my son's gender identity, but that I had made a false accusation against her and on that basis reduced the amount of time I had to see my children. They completely lied about it in court. Um, And so there's this tremendous bias in the psychology community. Later, I decided that in order to do this, I had to change laws. And so I decided to run for office. Uh, And it was the last-ditch way I could see to protect my son, really, was to change the laws. So the court issued an unconstitutional gag order against me. And this gag order does not prohibit me from speaking about my case. It prohibits me from doing any podcast, any radio show, any television show, writing any newspaper article, blog post, or social media post, appearing uh, as a, and quoted in any newspaper or, or, or anything. And I'm prohibited from speaking about certain political topics. I'm not allowed to talk to you about transgender issues. I'm not allowed to talk to you about anything related to gender identity or gender dysphoria. And I'm not allowed to tell you whether my son is a boy or a girl. Now this is totally illegal and it was designed to prevent me from running for office. Um, so I have told the judge uh, three times in court, and I'll just say it to the camera again, I don't follow illegal orders and mandates from the government anymore since COVID. That order is illegal. It's an affront to the rights of Texans to speak freely. I have maximum contempt for the order. I have maximum contempt for Judge Mary Brown who issued the order. I will never follow the order. And I've invited the judge to send me to the Lou jail for criminal contempt under the maximum sentence, and I will go straight to the law library. I have a writ of habeas corpus already prepared. We will go to the Fifth District Court of Appeals. She will appear in judge robes. I will appear in handcuffs, and we'll see who's right.
0: Um, yeah. So where, you know, as you were speaking, I was waiting for the part where you were going to say, but then I appealed the ruling, and an appellate court said that is not permissible. But the ruling is in place, in which I, I, I so commend your bravery. So, back to your situation, you were trying very much to get the court's attention to the mm-hmm. idea that you viewed this transition uh, effort mm-hmm. by your uh, ex wife mm-hmm. to be the driving force, I mean, to, to be what it was bringing us all about. And that you, mm-hmm. when you're, as I understand it, when your boys had time with you, mm-hmm. they both behave like boys. They yes. acted like
2: boys. My son only presents as a girl when he's with his mother. When he's with everyone else, he presents just as a normal boy. Um, he's, he's a painter, he likes to paint. Um, He likes uh, writing quite a bit, but he's also a very skilled boxer and uh, one of the fastest runners in his school. Um, Olympic talent coaches have even looked at him. He's that good of a boxer. Um, He engages in stereotypical boy activities. He's high spirited. Um, He doesn't present any signs that he wants to be a girl. And he's flat out told me that he presents as a girl with his mother because she won't love him. If he's not a girl, oh, oh my gosh! And he's told uh, what I haven't seen my sons for a year now. Uh, the judge gave me supervised visitation less than convicted sex offenders because in July, my son told the court-appointed counselor four times that he wants to be a boy and he wants to go to school as a boy because he's getting embarrassed, and uh, she didn't even react to him. So he took his Apple Watch in there and recorded himself telling her that. And when she realized she was being recorded, she threw him out of the office initiated the, the ninth uh, CPS investigation that I've endured and uh, then told the court that I was coercing James, but never told the court that he wanted to be a boy.
0: It is, it is like all of the forces of society, the psychologists, psychiatrists, yes. the courts, legislators. we can get to that in a moment with Senator Hall um, uh, on what role the, the legislature could play uh, and what they might be able to do. But so you, this whole issue occurring with your son has been now over, I've lost track of the years. You, He was two, he's, is he 10 now?
2: It's now eight years, yeah. He's 10 it's years old. It's eight years.
0: Eight years. And the um, idea that he is being told he's a girl c- came from his mom. And, and so far as you know, his conversation with you, he's a boy and he wants to be a boy.
2: Yes. Uh, she, we, we have actual testimonial evidence. She thought that he was a girl when he requested a girl's toy uh, when, when they requested a, a McDonald's Happy Meal. And a few days later, uh, they were in Target and he wanted a silver purse with a unicorn on it. And from that, she concluded he might be a girl, and she's testified to that.
0: You know, I want to talk about this this trend in society. I have a bunch of data here and I may or may not get into it, but point, this point, well, one quick amazing thing is for most of the time when all of us were growing up, um, this was not this is a very very unpopular concept or a very very rare concept Yes, but right now five percent of young adults five percent of young adults um, Identify as either transgender or non-binary and so this is a it's, it's a push of thought It's a trendy you know, this is what's cool to do kind of thing and it, it it's so it's, it's the bizarre thing, but I want to um, Get around to, to talking about the idea that um, and we talked about it before he came on today, but it's, it's transitioned from where in society we used to recognize when we were growing up, you know, there were girls who were tomboys sure. and there were boys who preferred to play violin over football. Sure. And so parents respected the individuality of their kids. You let them be kids. Mm-hmm. And you were talking earlier about how what, if you just let it go naturally, what is the process that with most kids, what will emerge out of that, even with the tomboys or the violin playing
2: girls well my experts testified at trial that 80 to 90 percent depending on which of the studies you consult children simply grow out of these things right and we all know no tomboys that just grow up and grow out of it I I, I had friends who uh, boy boys when I was growing up that you would probably say were effeminate who you know grew up to one of them grew up to be a professional baseball player right kids just grow up and grow out of these things most of the time some percentage of them become homosexual some percentage of them need some counseling, but it's a fairly small percentage. Puberty is the cure for gender dysphoria.
0: That's, the That's thing why is that it makes rugs- no
2: sense to block it.
0: Yeah, and once they engage in the gender uh, these uh, puberty blockers and drugs to aid with this transition, the normal process of life yes. I- is interfered with.
2: Yeah, one of the big lies that that has been told in in court with me many times, and is definitely a common currency among trans advocates, is that these procedures are reversible. So you administer puberty blockers, and they'll say it's reversible. Well, if you just think about puberty, pu- let's let's assume that the physical effects are reversible. Now, that's not true, right? We have long term studies from Scandinavian countries now, and we've got like you know k- k- people in their mid twenties getting you know very serious and, and almost lethal osteoporosis who have been on these drugs for a long period of time. There are no long-term studies on this other than those Scandinavian studies, and they're all negative. But let's just assume that's the case. Um, Puberty is a series of psychological, social, and physical changes that occur at a very specific time in a child's life. By delaying it for several years, you're not going to get the same effects, the same social, psychological, and physical effects as doing it at the proper time. And every child's body is different and knows when it needs to go through these changes, right? And so the idea that even psychologically that it would be reversible is preposterous.
0: It is, and I'm sure you have read, and everyone in the room has read, stories of people who are now in the early 20s or or even Mm -hmm. older who went through transition and are are lamenting, why does society let me do this? Why Why didn't someone stop me?
2: There's one of the, there are many, many, like very obvious and basic logical contradictions in the transgender ideology. And one of them is they constantly talk about the lived experience of transgender people as a basis for doing these procedures. And they do, trim- they do all of these studies on the lived experience of transgender people and why they need these surgeries. But, but they totally discount the lived experience of detransitioners And people have lived to regret these decisions and in fact, there is no federal funding or state funding available for research into detransitioners. They will not fund studies in this area.
0: But they will fund... Correct. Transgendering. Correct. Okay. Senator Hall, you, as I mentioned when I introduced you, in fact, I always made this little spiel, I think I told you earlier on the phone, but you know, I think a lot of things that happen um, in society, we are very comfortable labeling things Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. And because of the media's Mob mentality, anything labeled conservative, anything labeled Republican, you're kind of, you're, you're the, and the idea is these people are kind of far right, they're extremists, or, and honestly, the things that you push for in all sorts of arenas in the legislature, they, they I guess, get the label conservative, but you're just a common sense, pro freedom, pro America, you know, pro fundamental traditional values that pretty much everyone used to believe in, and somehow they've been cast into this, oh, that's a far-right idea. And and, and, and this w- is one of the most tender issues we're talking about. So I'm going to start with you. What role should or could legislature ever play in dealing with this kind of situation, and can they?
1: Uh, it's unfortunate. When I first got elected, I would have never dreamed, if somebody said, what's the wildest thing you think you'd have to do in legislature? I wouldn't even have thought of this uh, being, being yeah. an issue. But... Uh, in line with what you said, uh, the role of government really is to protect people. It's supposed to be, it's, you know, the difference between Republicans and Democrats. The Republicans view government as protecting liberty, not providing free stuff. And yeah. so you kind of go off on a divergence of uh, one side wanting what can the government do and, and their ideas of, uh, of this free spirit that you can be anything and whatever you want and lack of responsibility and so on. But uh, in, in protecting people, and and it's a it's a battle we have because the one there there are areas we're going over in the education where we're fighting really hard for the parents to have the say in what's happening with their kids. So we're arguing over the, with the schools over what should my child be taught, you know, how should they be taught, and I want to be involved in it. And over here we're now going to talk about an issue. Wait a minute, you parents uh, that are trying to do this, uh, you can't do that. And so it, it's a. It's a strange balancing act we've got, but it's a different thing because it's just like protecting the unborn, which cannot protect themselves, or protecting the elderly in the hospital that cannot protect themselves. With government's role of responsibility of protecting, when the parents aren't protecting the child, they are subjecting them to harm. That's one of the reasons we have CPS, is that uh, there is a definite need for CPS because there are parents who abuse their children. Well, this is a form of abuse. And until just recently, unfortunately, CPS ad- considered the parent that was not going along with the child to transition was the one that was the abuser. Mm-hmm. That is the way they have been, they, they've operated all along. The governor put out a letter and they, they tried to change. That is not going to work because CPS doesn't have. The only tool in the toolbox of CPS when they have a parent that is abusing a child is to take the child away. Yep. That's all they can do, take the child away. And uh, that's not a solution to this problem. But The government does have a responsibility to protect them, and we've tried to do that with legislation. When I first met Jeff a couple of sessions back and looking at legislation that would prohibit the, uh, the removal, basically removal of the healthy body parts, from, a, from anybody under 18. And, um, and so because of the nature of the, of the House and the way they are they're structured and operate, we've been able, not been able to get anything out of the House. I feel fairly confident we'll get another bill out of the Senate this time to put a stop to, to it. I think we had a pretty good plan uh, on it, prohibiting the doctors and, and not allowing insurance surgeries like that uh, but the arguments that Jeff uh, brought out about it we heard it just blows your mind to listen to it uh, the rationale behind it and the people that came in and testified about it uh, so and, and 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 as I did the research trying to say okay what what is this now that it's something totally new it's not like the other battles we've had and this the statistics it, it, it makes it a no-brainer I mean, those that go through transition. And if you heard the testimony from some people who have transitioned more than once, yeah. uh, and there was one that transitioned more than twice. Uh, you talk about confu- dysphoria or confusion, but, uh, but not one of them that came in and testified and said, that's the best thing I ever did. Every, they, were, they were about, you know, if only somebody had helped me early on in, in <laughs> it. And, um, uh, and the, but the suicide rate, the drug use uh, goes sky high after transitioning. It's a, it's something that, um, uh, it, it sounds like, and you just talk about it. It's okay. You just cut those body parts off and sew them up and they'll be fine. No, that's, that's, that's just not the way it works. And, uh, trying to pretend something that is clearly not what God intended. It is, uh, it's like, there's almost a little bit of extra punishment. For having done that, because I've yet to, to hear one say, "Man, that was that was the best thing that ever happened to me," True. in doing
0: yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Your point earlier about your uh, wife having, uh, ex-wife having uh, noticed cho- little choices your son made and saying those mm-hmm. are the signs. You know, it is. It goes back to this. Uh, I thought when you're both speaking about the idea that we try in our society to have this instant fix. Oh, this is a problem. Okay, here's an instant fix. So we do a transition versus respecting individuality and say, okay, this is great. This is a young kid who wanted to buy a silver purse of the unicorn or whatever it was or pick some toy. The, the notion of nurturing each individual as it was a God-given purpose and identity and individuality and letting them grow up and become, as you say, there, there are you know men, adult men, who function as men, wives, kids, and and, and uh, are we would think of as more effeminate. And there are women who are pretty you know masculine or certainly stronger and tougher than i am uh and but who are living life married and the whole notion of just having this instant thing to me to me the most troubling thing about all this is that it's children and they aren't we don't indulge in fact bill maher had that great line bill maher he's like almost getting to be a conservative he is. had that great line about when he was growing up he uh, really wanted to be a pirate and he's so glad no one scheduled him for peg leg surgery right. it was a great line i mean just you know, kids go all through you know, imaginations, I think of a Martian, I mean, you don't send them to Mars, you go, well, that's great, you know, eat your spinach. I mean, sure. you, just, <laughs> you just let them be kids. But it's this part of this is instant gratification, instant fix society says, oh, we can change that. But back to the legislation, what is so challenging, and I'm glad you made the analogy to abortion, you can get doctors who will say, abortion is the best answer in this case because this woman is troubled. And so you, you, it's a difficult challenge for a legislature to decide, when do you step in when you, what appears what you're saying may conflict with what the medical community or some portion of the medical community is saying? So you, you know, but we, we do, generally speaking, protect the unborn. That, that's whatever anyone thinks in the, in the medical community, that we feel that's a job or many people have a job of legislature. And the same with kids who are going to go through what is not reversible care.
1: Well, well we protect kids now. I mean, we have laws to protect kids. They can't get tattoos until they're 18, can't drink, can't smoke, yeah, yeah. and uh, at least hold off till 16 to be able to drive. And so there are things that we do. I mean, now there are some people suggest that maybe we need to raise those ages to about 25 or 28 now. Uh, <laughs> Let's take a
0: vote in here. Yeah. And,
1: uh, but uh, but we, we do protect these kids. I mean, yeah. we, ha- we have a role in doing that. And uh, this is just another one. That, uh, that where it says, okay, particularly, and what Jeff was referring to is, there, as I've listened to this conversation, God's plan, we aren't born. We don't come out of the womb ready to go with everything. I mean, we come out with a set of instructions. We come out with a conscience and, a, and an innate understanding of right and wrong. And then over time, things come together. It grows. Some things get bigger. Some things get smaller. We get taller. Some... People change over time, and there's there's a whole period there that, in the mind of those of those young kids, they couldn't answer what's what's a woman. I mean, they wouldn't know either because they they're no clue. They're little kids, and so there's no there's there's uh, they're not answering. But then they then the the God planned step in their life called puberty, and all of a sudden the light comes on and they understand what the parts they God gave them, uh, were meant for and things change with them. And like Jeff said, I mean, I remember sissy boys growing up and tomboy girls, those girls grew up to be some of the best looking cheerleaders we had. And <laughs> some of those boys were some of the toughest football players we had. Yep. And so they went through that and, and got to it. But what we're doing now in, in and I think is contributing <laughs> to this growth is what we're teaching kids. Starting in pre-K, I mean, I've got the textbooks that they use. I thought it was bad when I saw them for the 10-year-olds, and then I saw them for the 7-year-olds. But when I saw it for the 4-year-olds and saw what they were teaching them and then saw what's the documentary, Mind Polluters, we are grooming kids. We're going to see more of this because all of that does is bring confusion into their heads because we're telling them things that's counter to what was naturally put in them by God when they were born. They're telling them that right is wrong and wrong is right. and Up is up, down, and down is up. And so the dysphoria that comes is, is more than just sex. It's, it's on everything. And I think that's what is leading to beyond just the sex issue. But uh, kids just absolute confusion about life, period. And it comes from what, what, we're being, what they're being groomed, how they're being groomed and what they're being taught early on in school.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, one point I meant to make, and I think this somehow, as this conversation is ongoing in society, there's a, there's a kind of an issue that has people try to elevate and say, well, this is the deciding issue. Is gender, is your and I know they try to distinguish the terms gender from your sex, but is gender innate and your, whatever your anatomy you're born with, is your gender or is gender a decision you can make? And people who say, it's a decision you can make and you can change your mind, uh, when they say that, then you know, we, we get sidetracked into arguing, no, 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 it's what you're born with. But with respect to children, we don't have to resolve that. We mm-hmm. don't have to resolve the question, are you born that way? Is it, it, you know, were you born and you were in a male body, but you're really a girl or vice versa? Or is it something that is psychological, that society is pushing, which is what I think it is. I think psychology is pushing this on society and people who have a nefarious mission toward families, they're pushing it. But with kids, I don't care what their dumb psychological answers are. I mean, isn't that right? We don't have to debate that on this issue of children.
2: Yeah, I mean, psychology used to, um, in cases where uh, ideas in psychology weren't firmly understood or whether there was doubt whether they were causing harm, the principle in medicine and psychology has always been watchful waiting and this has been completely watchful waiting waiting. just wait and see if it resolves itself and very often it does they've abandoned completely abandoned that principle and to tie it in with what Bob was saying um, there's a concerted uh, effort to destroy all forms of social norms and so what you see in the schools is they're teaching that there are no social norms that have any validity and so since none of them have validity children are free to choose what what kind of social norms they want to follow, what sort of identity they want to follow. You know, there was a time in in Texas family courts, if you failed to adequately socialize your children, that's the language they used. If you failed to adequately socialize your children, it was a cause to take your children. You were not teaching your children how to behave properly and would damage their long-term prospects. Um, This idea of socializing children into our traditional social norms uh, is something that we don't talk enough about. But that's what's being attacked in the schools at all levels and on all subjects.
0: I do want to get on the subject of legislation in a moment, like what Mm. could be done and had you been successful in running Mm. for state rep, um, what you would have tried to push the legislature. Uh, But the other issue we touched on was how the courts handle divorces, Mm. what rights they think fathers have. And I know you've spoken this at great length in your campaign. So what's wrong with the way Texas courts now handle divorces and child custody cases with respect to the father versus the mother's rights?
2: So, there's two things that you have to understand about uh, um, this. That one is the financial incentives, and the second are special changes to the family code that were added in the late 80s in Texas in response to those federal incentives. So, the, the, the signature program that's causing most of the problems in family court is something called Title IV D. If IV-D. you go down, Title IV D. It's a Roman numeral four, capital D. If you go down to the, the family courthouse, which I unfortunately fortunately dragged down there very often, on the fourth floor, there's a whole row of Title 4 D courts. And those courts exist to take men, either bring them onto the Title IV system and enforce collection, or to put them into the Lou sterrett County Jail, in which they roll off the Title 4 D reimbursement system to the federal prison reimbursement system. So what Title IV-D did, and it was, a, it was a, a program created by a Democratic federal legislature, and it was signed by Gerald Ford. And this, this law provides for matching funds for the collection of child support. And it's about 66 cents on the dollar. If you have equal parenting, 50-50 shared parenting, there's no child support. So the state doesn't get any money. So you need a situation in which one parent loses and one parent wins. Then the state maximizes its money. Now, let me tell you how much money we're talking about. We're talking about, in Texas, about half a billion dollars. A year. A year. Now, if, when you consider all the states in the union, you're reaching the size of a program that's about what a carrier group. Now, how many of you have ever heard of a big defense program being taken away or being you know, ended? They just don't end. So this has taken over the states. <coughs> The entire Attorney General's office is funded by this money. The Judicial Retirement Fund is funded from this money. The more uh, child support that a judge issues, the larger their retirement. So there are massive financial incentives. Now, statutorily, what was the state's response in the late 80s? Texas passed a couple of laws. They seem innocuous on, 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 their, on, their, on their face. The first one was in the uh, uh, Civil and Remedies Code. Every court in the state of Texas is required to rule in such a way as to maximize Title IV-D returns.
0: The statute
2: says that. Yes, it does. And oh that overrules gosh. the best interest of the child standard.
0: To maximize federal funds correct. overrules the interest of a child.
2: That's correct. And in order to ensure that this happened, they altered the family code. And this is one statute 153.03 or 05, I believe. Um, which says that the standard possession schedule, which is laid out in the Family Code, is presumed to be in the best interest of the child. The standard possession schedule makes a father and every other weekend father. That keeps him below thirty percent with the children, which maximizes Title IV D funding. Oh, so there are massive, there's a and there's a massive amount of money involved in this, and that has pushed uh, fathers out of children's lives, which has then caused the crisis of fatherlessness and all of the. Social problems that attend it. Okay,
0: I am—you know—I am a lawyer by background. I never knew that area of law. So what you're describing would require a change in federal law as well as state. I mean, the state well, could just say no, thanks. The state could forego
2: the money. Some states have Kentucky, Arizona, for example, have gone to 50-50 shared parenting and have simply forgone the money because the social effects in Kentucky were, were absolutely disastrous. There, rural communities were absolutely destroyed with the absence of fathers.
0: Well. Across the board, it's problematic, the absence yes. of fathers in our country. So I do want to, you know, Senator Hall, you, we have, you yeah. and I talk a lot. We have a lot of issues I want to run through that are unrelated <laughs> to these issues. And I do want to try to get to them. But very quickly, if you had uh, been elected to the Texas State Legislature, what's your top three or four things you would try to do is push those laws?
2: So uh, the, the first one was border security. And, uh, and actually, Abbott actually copied some, some of the platform that I published uh, on my website. Um, I said we should simply, the, the problem that's happening at the border, people misunderstand it. It's not that people are sneaking across the Rio Grande. Very few people are actually doing it. That's mainly drugs coming across. The way the problem actually happens is at legal ports of entry. So they come in, they flood legal ports of entry. When the detention centers are full, everybody that comes in is released on personal recognizance. And they just flood them in, right? So the idea would be for the state to build detention facilities that the federal government could use, so they don't have that excuse anymore but then to also arrest them on state offenses and put them into state jails on the border with early release if they help build the wall. That's what I wanted to do. That would be really fun. That, okay. I, that sounds so clever. I didn't actually invent that. I shouldn't take credit. I got that idea from Mexico. All the infrastructure in southern Mexico was built by illegal immigrants from Guatemala.
0: That is great. But on the subject of the uh, your child's situation and how we treat the issue so, of... Here's the issue.
2: There, there were two proposals that happened at the last session and I need to thank Bob because when I went to the legislature, no one actually even believed that this was happening except him. He's the only person that stood up for me when I first went to the legislature.
1: And he deserves that, a lot
2: actually. of credit yeah. for that.
0: Thank you for yes. that.
2: Yes. So what needs to happen is it needs to be classified as child abuse and the simply sanctioning doctors and uh, removing liability insurance from doctors will, will not suffice. And let me tell you why. In my case, for example, My ex-wife has been chomping at the bit to get my son to Oregon to do this procedure out of state. So if this is not classified as child abuse and it's only prohibited from doctors performing it in state, you could have a court order which would prohibit someone from doing these procedures in state, but they could take the child out of state and still do them because it's not child abuse. There would only be civil remedies available, perhaps contempt remedies available. What we need to do is classify it as child abuse. And Ken Paxton has given us uh, an excellent basis on which to do that, Right in the same way that you can't to- tattoo a child, as, as Bob said, um, which, which permanently affects a child's life. You can't make that choice for a child. Similarly, you cannot remove the ability of a child to procreate. That constitutes child abuse. There's a longstanding uh, federal law on this that goes all the way back to England. I mean, it's, it's consistent in every way. So we could actually do this. Um, but there are large forces, even within the Republican Party, that do not want to make this child abuse. But that's what I would have, have proposed um, with regard to this. Yeah.
0: I love that. You know, I'm watching the clock and how much I uh, have on my long my list of things I want to ask about. Um, first of all, I really commend your bravery. I, I commend your bravery, your uh, speaking up here and in all the places you go, your effort to go, uh, get a seat in the Texas House push this issue, because this is, I, I mean, I, my heart goes out to you and your family and your son. I, I Thank you. you know, it's, it's an amazing battle to have to go through. And the idea, yeah, that the, leg, I mean, really, society kind of failed your family. Texas legislature failed your family in they not did. helping you to step up. They and did. so I hope that th- changes The can House make. in
2: particular, and we really need to single the House out and the House leadership, who intentionally blocked a bill that would have protected children from removal of healthy genitalia. The, the House Republicans actually did that. And we need to hold them accountable for that. And yeah. two people I'd like to call out on that, well, three, Dade Phelan, who organized that, uh, Stephanie Click, who, who delayed the bill in committee, yep. and Dustin Burroughs, who runs a calendar committee, where every good conservative bill goes to die, goes to Dustin Burroughs' committee and a calendar committee. That man has killed more conservative legislation than anybody in the legislature. Okay.
0: There you go. Um, again, I commend you for this. I, I felt like we could talk for two hours because I had other, yep. as we sat downstairs having a cup of coffee first, a lot of other ways we could have gone with this. I do, though, Senator Hall, I, you know, you've been this person who's done my show many times and uh, spoke up on so many issues, and a lot of Texans are waiting for some issues to be resolved. I know you've been working hard, and I want to run through on some of the most important ones and so what you think you can maybe accomplish in the next legislature, what your goals are. Uh, one has to do with the electric grid. Where are we on the electric mm-hmm. grid?
1: Well, I think more people are paying attention to it. When I first got to the legislature, nobody could understand the threat called EMP. They couldn't even yes. spell it. And yeah. uh, and now I think with uh, what, did, and all of a sudden they couldn't comprehend the impact of not having electricity. Yuri solved that problem. I think people now recognize without electricity, you can't even get water. Right. And uh, so it's very important, and we're more vulnerable now than ever. Uh, I'm hopeful that, uh, that as we go with a, a total approach to increasing our reliability and resilience against all threats, which would not be not just EMP and GMD and cyber and physical, but also uh, weather-related threats to it, which are just as bad. And so I think I've had a number of people that said uh, in the interim uh, or after the storms, maybe we should have listened to you a few years back.
0: Yeah, I mean, no one would wish the suffering those storms caused on anyone, but they did really make your point. You can, you know, run through bullet points and arguments, and uh, but you know, spend whatever it was, ten days with no power. In some cases, uh, yeah, just just horrific, and and actually cause death. So uh, there's a plan pretty much ready for this next session about. Yes,
1: what to- yes, we will have we will have a bill to begin the process. It so will not only address the power, the grid itself, but the infrastructure that we have to have to survive. We we have to have more than just the grid. We've got to have our sewer systems. We have to have our law enforcement. We have to have fuel. We have to have transportation. There's a, the whole set of uh, infrastructure uh, will be identified as needing to start the process so that we can recover from from a full outage. We won't be able to get to the point where the lights don't blink when something happens. We have to get to the light point that is better than where we are today, which is if they go out they will never come back on again, literally. Oh,
0: gracious. You mean if literally. the grid collapses? If
1: the grid were to collapse, and the, we, don't, we don't have the spares, we don't have the parts, we wouldn't have the transportation, we wouldn't have the equipment, because the major things, uh, such as the high-voltage transformer, weighs several thousand tons, mm-hmm. and we don't even make them here in the United States. Sure. They're manufactured in China, mm-hmm. and most of what we have in spares right now, we suspect have malware in them, so that they could be turned off at any time. And so without that, you get no electricity. And a study done by the White House uh, a few years back on grid security said without electricity uh, in 11 months, we will lose 90% of the population.
0: Right. I was going to get to that. How lethal this isn't just, it might be a little bit too cold in the winter or we can't get yes, air conditioning, it's, it's, it's life and death.
1: That, that this, this is, this would be like putting, take, just ripping, picking everybody here up today and dropping them back in the 1800s. In which you had nothing but hand tools. Right.
0: Well, this was trying to earlier. And early, we don't
1: I, even have hand tools now.
0: Yeah, earlier I wasn't probably as articulate as I should have been. But this is one of the reasons that people look to you and appreciate you so much is because this issue of, of the electric grid. There was a lot of pushback from utility companies saying it's fine. We don't have to, you know, we don't, and, and not wanting to go to the expense. And there were not a whole lot of legislators. Willing to keep pushing it and saying no, actually we have to solve this, and it, and so we at least had a relatively minor crisis, as you say, that awakened people. But I, I really commend your, um, I mean, you're bringing your electrical engineering background and and your. I guess a lot of other background to it, but recognizing it's a really serious issue and you to push it, even though it's not trendy it, and it's not, it, it but it, it's a vital life and death issue. I uh, also want to turn to uh, you've been trying to work on the border and border security. Um, I know we, you mentioned earlier a little bit about that, but are we on track? I think it's called Operation Lone Star. Is that on track to do what has to be done, or what's
1: the story? Well, but we're on track to spend a lot of money, but not do much. Uh, there, there's not there's not much we can do until, because we have no authority to uh, enforce border law. That's a federal issue. Now we can solve that by entering into an interstate compact for border security with all we do is have one other state and it doesn't matter what the state is. It it doesn't have to be contiguous. It could be the state of Maine, if they decide, or it could be Florida, but enter into uh, an agreement with them uh, it does have to be approved by the Congress, but once they did that, we would then have the same authority as the federal government ha- has to enforce border law. That, that is, we could deport people. We could return them to across yeah. the border. Uh, and so we'll say, well, we can't do that with the way things are. Uh, come November, I truly expect that we will take back the Congress in Washington. We don't need the presidency. It's a congressional approval only according to the way it's written in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at that time, we could then take that money that we're now spending and we could then proceed to build. And I believe it would even allow us to then build on federal lands. That's one of the things we have right now. Unfortunate thing is you talk about what we're currently do. I think uh, the schedule that's been put out uh, of how, how long it takes to build a mile of border wall, uh, we can get it done uh, just short of 76 years, uh, the way oh, we currently Well, what so the country would be gone by work. then. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: right. Actually, it's interesting. This interstate compact idea. You know, you think of the other states that are contiguous with Mexico, California. Like they, they love illegal. I mean, they're, they're never going to go along with an actual enforcement effort. But Arizona might,
2: New Mexico mm, nothing,
0: might, not, right? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. 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 Well, I don't Maybe. know. I, I hope you're working on that because I do love that idea. I, I'm unwilling to trust the federal government to really yes. do what needs to be done. Um, and actually, you touched on something that ties into my last question for you. A reminder to our studio audience we have a microphone uh, and we do pass it around. If you have a question, you can raise your hand. You have to speak directly in the microphone. Do not hold it down here, right here, so the people out there in the world can hear us. Um, but the last thing I wanted to hit you, you mentioned, well, you think we'll take the House and the um, I don't know, Senate, we may take the House back in Congress. And let me just say this for our happy listeners. I said this on my show yesterday when we got back the primary results. uh, This is, I'm going to divert slightly to the state of Colorado. Uh, They had their primaries yesterday and Secretary of State uh, race involved uh, Tina Peters, who was uh, one of the three Republicans, two other people, one being a complete Democrat plant who sits on the Zuckerberg board that helped spread around the mail-in ballots, Uh, that woman, and I said when I announced the results, uh, supposedly Tina Peters, who was a very brave election clerk in Mesa County, and she has done great research. uh, And she was on the show, I think, three weeks ago, three weeks ago today. Um, She's spoken about what she did, why she engaged in the effort she did to discover what Uh, how vulnerable uh, the Dominion voting machines were, and she produced fabulous results, which are now being called the Rosetta Stone, to understand how dominion manipulates votes so tina peters allegedly the outcome announced um, after the tuesday primary uh, was that she came in third among three republicans and when i say three republicans tina peters real republican the one who won i think it's pam anderson zuckerberg person i mean this is a plant and the other person literally no one's ever heard of no involvement at all and apparently according to tina peters also democrat plant but I said yesterday in my show, I don't believe it. And I'm going to tell you more. I'm going to dive in deep this coming Tuesday, my next show after today's, this coming Tuesday. I'm going to tell you all about the data out there to show that was a completely manipulated election. They decided Tina Pierce is not going anywhere except jail. That's what the left thinks, um, and she's she's a fighter. She will not back down. She I don't know what exactly she's going to do, but that that was a stolen election. I'm not asking you guys to agree with me. I'm just telling you what I think. But turning to you, uh, back to U.S. Senator Hall, there are many, many people concerned about elections in this country. They they whether. You don't have to opine on the outcome of the 2020 elections, but people aware now of the vulnerability of electronic voting machines even now had CISA, which at the time under Trump after the election of 2020 was saying, oh my gosh, this was the most secure election in American history. Except not. They have announced about three or four weeks ago now, said actually as it turns out that these voting machines are completely vulnerable to hacking. Admitted it, sent out a warning to the states, but don't worry, we don't think they got hacked. I mean, that's like saying the bank hasn't had any security around the vault, but don't worry, no one would break in. I mean, just just absurd. But turning back, so what do we do in Texas? I think if people, even if they don't follow the issue as closely as I, and they're probably not, maybe as, I, I think we have no election integrity in this country unless we make changes so what can happen in texas what should happen so we can feel sure that our elections are secure
1: we can do it and uh, one of the things we don't have to worry about though are dominion machines we have no dominion machines in texas and the other part of the 2000 mule uh, we've got to be careful not to focus on that as being the uh bright shiny object that will solve our problems because we don't have drop boxes in Texas. Harrisburg tried, Harris County tried to do that. We don't have that. Uh, but what we do need to do is go from having two, three election procedures to only two. Currently we have early voting, mail-in ballots and an election day. We need to have a single in-person voting and mail-in ballots. Mail-in ballots need to be limited to the military, out of the state, the, the entire election period, and disabled. There is no reason that anybody should get a mail-in ballot just because they've turned so 65. So mail-in
0: ballot for cause,
1: for cause, Yeah, for cause. In-person voting, a single event, it would start the second Monday before the second Tuesday of November and end on election t- day, the second Tuesday in November, without a break. And couple that with hand-marked paper ballots that are read by a card reader, an optical reader, not a computer, just an optical reader in the precinct. And then in the process, the uh, card reader that's going to accumulate the, the answers, and it's a write once memory card. That is, you can only write on that card one time, and each ballot goes in, writes once, and each ballot then can only be read one time. So. And all of these things will only just reduce the opportunity for fraud as long as humans are involved we will never eliminate fraud but if you then then require that a zero tape printed just before the doors open on uh the first day of election of election to see it show there are no pre-stored votes in there run through the election period and whenever that machine stops being used if it runs all the way through election day, fine. If they have to take it, take it down or close that location, then you run what is called a tally tape. A tally tape prints out the results, the voting results for every item on the ballot. It's not part of the counting process. That tape is part of the security process. The judge and the, dep- and the vice ju- deputy judge sign that, it's put in a sealed envelope and nothing is done with it initially unless there's a challenge later on. And, but you do then run a, a 10% audit, as you t- 10%, uh, audit 10% of the precincts in the county to make sure that the tally tape and the hand-marked ballots match. And if you get more than a 1% difference, then you do a full uh, recount of, of them. And and so what that does for you, that gives you hard copy right at the precinct. So it doesn't matter what happens upstream Mm -hmm. between the county and the state of votes being manipulated, votes being sent off to somewhere in Spain or whatever has been talked about and changed and come back. Because at each step of the way, you have that precinct count at the county. You have the precinct count at the state. You can always take that right back to. Is, is that consistent with that hard copy that's there in that precinct? And so that is that is a solution. And the thing about it is that will be cheaper to do than what we do today. Because think yes. about this. in every precinct, we use a $3,500 piece of electronic equipment to go in and mark for it to take that mark and put it on a piece of paper. All we need is a number two pencil or a ballpoint pen to do the same thing and get rid of that $3,500 piece. Uh, computer.
0: Two things, is what you're describing uh, going to be the basis of legislation and secondly, yes. could it ever get through the Texas House and Senate?
1: I think I think it can. 20 other states, uh, first of all, the part about having a, a, a in-person voting event is done yes. by 20 states. Now, the fight we'll have is the, and the touchy part will be, way I'm proposing it, would have fewer early voting days the the problem there is it may be interpreted by the feds as voter suppression by having fewer days and their excuse to come back to now approving and overseeing everything we do in texas we may have to include the full time period which would mean two weekends of voting and republicans are opposed to two weekends of voting because they they have the misconception that more Democrats vote on the weekend than Republicans do. That's a, lo- that's a lousy excuse to put, to put that up against the security we lose by doing it. I've researched it, and when I came back with people who studied this, it says on Saturday and Sunday, on Sunday, the Democrats vote more than Republicans do when they're Sunday voting. On Saturday more Republicans vote than do Democrats, and there's hardly much of a difference between the two, a slight edge goes to the Democrats. That slight edge is not worth the vulnerability of security, and the other thing is, we've got to stop all practices that are done for convenience of the workers that sacrifice security. We have got to place election security above convenience. And that nice. may mean that we go back to precinct voting instead of county-wide voting,
2: which I think so. Yeah,
0: you know what, Um, I'm grateful because I know you have paid a lot of attention to the issue. I think the Texas legislature passed some things last year which were designated uh, election integrity. I think a lot of conservatives thought they didn't go far enough. Um, And I think there are, you know, people who are just concerned about anything electronic being anything near the ballot process. Um, but I, I love that, I mean, you, are, you dove in deep and you came up with a plan that is, uh, seems to account for all the, the challenges. And I'm glad you made the point about 2,000 mules. It's not just that we didn't have those, those ballot boxes in Texas, but 2,000 mules, number one by itself, as they run their own numbers, was sufficient to change the outcome of the election in those swing states mm-hmm. where, where it occurred but it was also a tiny portion of the actual fraud that occurred, uh, which m- much of it having to do with voter rolls being swelled up, uh, casting of votes to people who then later their names are taken back out of the rolls, and then many, many pieces of it. 2,000 mules was a relatively small portion of the overall fraud, and the concept of our anything electronic is hackable. I mean, if the NSA's computers get hacked, which they have, any voting machine in America gets hacked. And so to me, getting everything electronic out is the, is the mission. But anyway, paper, thank you.
1: Paper books, no more electronic. If, they aren't, if their name isn't in that book, let them vote provisional and work it out later.
0: Yeah, okay. I uh, Thank you both. I tell you what, because I talked too long, we have a very quick minute. We can take, if someone has a question, you can say it in 30 seconds. Uh, we have a microphone over there um, because I went a little long, sorry. But there were two of them. That's why I went long, <laughs> there. and thank you for the good work you're doing. Um, Have you considered the legislators um, coming from an approach that's more emotional instead of protecting gun rights, you know, protect our kids by hardening our schools, protect, we love every child, so that's why we don't want them to transition. You know, have you thought of coming from more of an emotional perspective? Because, you know, I heard statistics and stuff like that, and I just think This is something we all can come together, no matter what our
2: party affiliation is. We wonder what you think. Yeah, I actually completely agree with that. And uh, we've done polling on this. So we know in Texas we have 90-plus percent of Republicans and 60-plus percent of Democrats with us. So it says something (laughs) remarkable that the legislature still couldn't pass it and that there are rich, moneyed interests in the Republican Party Mm -hmm. that want to stop this legislation. And so we're gonna to have to just directly confront that at some point, but you're right. This is a really a question about the welfare of children and the long-term care of children and doing what's right to ensure that they can flourish over the long term.
0: Absolutely, I'm very sorry, we kind of are out of time. Um, I, I do want to mention, uh, which is I think a great commentary on all the conversations that been brought out. You know, I always say the leftist, but whoever it is who's pushing the whole transgender agenda, trying to push the idea, that it's just a naturally occurring thing, and, and, you know, and, it's, and we must honor every individual, no matter how young or old they are, that they say they are, need to be transitioned, we just jump on board. All of that's been pushed and pushed, and the whole idea that you are born that way, and so therefore, how could you be? It's like blaming me for being born female or something. How can you blame them if born that way? Despite all of that media onslaught, there is recent polling showing that the number of Americans who agree that your gender is is a fact established at your birth, and that's what your gender is. That percentage of Americans agreeing with that is going up. Mm-hmm. It's, it was and friends, since since 2016 to, till now, which has been this big push. Now, it's 60% of Americans say your gender is what you were born with at birth, and all and, and it's not what you are. I mean. Different thing if you're agreeing you want to make a change, but I love that concept of Americans really being kind of smarter than the people trying to push them around. 60%. On the other hand, we have, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it is a 5% of young adults think they're transgender. And so I'll I'll close the show by saying, uh, first of all, I'm grateful for both of you for all that you're doing. Thank you 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 so much for your speaking up, your bravery, Uh, Senator Hall. You're just an endless rock star in the Senate. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. And I also want, yeah. I want to thank everyone being here in the audience, too, because part of what, you know, making changes in policy is getting people who are elected to realize it's actually, they, they you know, the two things elected people don't, uh, that, that they want is to be reelected and they want to get money. If they begin to get pressure from the public that you just, you must do something or you might lose your seat, that's when they might start listening more. And I, President Company accepted, you serve with honor, period, full stop. A lot of elected officials need to know where the public is, so the more we all speak up and let them know where we are, what we think, what we expect them to do, the better off we all are going to be in Texas. So I want to thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for your audience. Thank you our guests. Thank you for listeners to America Can We Talk? Uh, you can, if you're listening online or you're listening on radio, you can always find the show at our website, americacanwetalk.org. Every past show, interview, blog, why it matters, features, everything we do is on the website. And you can actually watch the show live there, too. I want to thank you for tuning in to America, Can We Talk? Every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time, I do this show because America matters. And I will talk to you next time.
2: America, can we talk? truth about America.